today on the Tearsheet Podcast. I think what gets me most excited is that we're we're barely scratching the surface of usefulness of, of payroll and income data, right? I think um, the focus to date, n- not only in the payroll space, but I would argue also in kind of the, the banking data space, has really been about data accessibility and increasing the, you know, the number of data points that a financial institution could use to make a credit decision. The following was produced by Tearsheet Studios. We worked with employment and income data platform Argyle to create a podcast about how alternative lending options, such as earned wage access, early pay, and paycheck-linked lending, can solve some of the challenges for consumers who do not qualify for traditional credit today. More than 50% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck and may have thin or no credit history. In today's podcast, we're speaking to Matt Gomes, Director of Strategy at Argyle. He breaks down how alternative options like paycheck-linked lending, earned wage access, early pay, and cash advance can offer different solutions. Hey, Zach. Uh, Matt Gomes. I'm the Director of Personal Lending and Banking Solutions here at Argyle. Um, you know, for those who don't know, Argyle is the leading uh, payroll data and employment data API platform out there powering financial institutions all over the U.S. Uh, and Canada to, to really help them bring the next generation of, of financial products to, to consumers. Day to day, really lead kind of product strategy and, and go to market strategy for both those solutions. Prior to joining Argyle, spent the last kind of seven, eight years of my career uh, in the personal lending space uh, in the U.S. So a lot of experience in the space. Appreciate that introduction. And I think I'd like to start our, our questioning with some high-level questions, um, really looking at uh, the pay cycle and where we are sort of in the evolution of the pay cycle. So so why is the two-week pay cycle out of date? It feels like that's something that's you know sort of an anachronism. And what issues can this cycle cause for the everyday American consumer? Yeah, it's, you know, it's, I think it's a great question, and I'm actually going to start by answering it backwards. So, so throw a curveball right back at you. So, I think, you know, specific to the U.S., one of the the real challenges that that everyday consumers face is just the economic reality that you know they, they find themselves in. Right. So, I, the most recent stats: about 150 million Americans have less than a thousand dollars in savings. 115 million of them report living paycheck to paycheck, and um, you know about a third of the U.S. adult population lacks access to traditional forms of credit. And I, I think the you know the reason that the two-week pay cycle, or or in some cases the monthly pay cycle, is really out of date and creates a problem is exactly because that that segment of the population does not have the ability to absorb unexpected expenses, and so. You know, if you think about trying to manage, you know, just day-to-day budget with with that type of constraint, or even month-to-month budget, if you have an unexpected expense that that you know could even be as small as fifty, hundred, hundred and fifty dollars that wasn't in your kind of day-to-day plan, um, you know, you can end up in a really tricky situation very, very quickly. And I, I think the most kind of telling statistic, right, is that in 2019. Um, banks in the United States made about $18 billion off of overdraft fees. And if you assume a $35 average overdraft fee, that translates to about two overdrafts per adult in the U.S., right? So this is a very 
just kind of present um, and and growing issue, I think, in the, in the States. I get that. Um, and so obviously we've seen um, earned wage access as, as a theme pop up here on the podcast and in our reporting. Why is access to revolving earned wage access critical in an economy like ours and in a subscription economy? Yeah, you know, I think I think it's it's to combat it's to combat that lack of of liquidity in the events that you know an unexpected expense does crop up. And I think one of the ways to think about that is just the the kind of extreme growth in folks that you see participating in the gig economy. Right, one of the advantages. To platforms like Uber, you know, DoorDash, Lyft, et cetera, is that they do allow you to take an instant payout right after completing a trip. So I think you know, something that we saw throughout the, the 2010s and, and into this decade is, is the growth of platforms like that as more and more people you know, turn to them to, to increase earnings on the side or, or gain that liquidity. I think earned wage access is, is you know, just a different flavor right? Where if someone has has worked one out of the two weeks in pay cycle, let's say it's someone that, you know, is making $2,000 per paycheck, um, you know, which which kind of pegs you at about 50K, 52,000 a year, right? Uh, it's pretty close to the, the median US consumer. You've really earned, you know, a thousand out of that 2,000. If you had an unexpected expense, um, and and you weren't going to be able to make it to the next payday. There's really no reason that 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 individual shouldn't be able to access their pay. Um, so I, I think earned wage access is really kind of the the next evolution in improving day to day liquidity and and uh, or it's it's kind of table stakes going forward is in my mind. That makes a lot of sense, and I, I I'm curious given where you sit, Matt, and where Argyle is sort of sitting in the ecosystem. What you see the options are for workers uh, to access funds faster? You know, I, I think there's there's a handful out there, right, that that are in varying levels of of kind of maturity. So we've already touched on earned wage access, and and I really think of of earned wage access as kind of solving for short term liquidity problems, right? So um, someone who needs hundred, hundred and fifty dollars for something like groceries and, and a tank of gas, right? To to make it to the next paycheck. Um, I think early pay is is becoming more and more common. And and frankly, I think it will it will be available probably across financial institutions within the next five years. And and I really think of early pay as as once you know a bank, a neobank, a credit union has the ACH instructions from payroll, they know that those funds are going to hit you know, their, their customers account. And so they make them available two days early at no fee, just, just based on deposits they already hold. I, I really think that's going to become table stakes. Um, helpful, but doesn't necessarily solve that unexpected expense earlier in the pay cycle. And then the last one that, that I think we're really seeing grow is kind of paycheck link lending, which, you know, is, is an installment loan repaid directly from paycheck. Um, you know, allows for for folks with with uh, little to no credit to still qualify, and I think the key difference comparing that to earned wage access is that it's not really meant to be used for or used for, frankly, uh, for the short term liquidity issues. So again, something like you know, grocery bill, tank of gas. It's more for something like uh, auto repair, 
um, unexpected medical expense, medical expense if you have a uh, high deductible healthcare plan, really something like that. So we're we're more talking kind of fifteen hundred to you know five or six thousand somewhere somewhere in that range. So I'd love to double click on on some of these differences as well. Um, from a from a consumer's point of view, are, are they is it clear? You know the benefits and sort of the the challenges of using each one of these different options. You know, I I don't think it is. So having again having been on kind of the lending side and and really knowing this consumer well, I I don't think that that it's easy for consumers to navigate this space. And I'd actually take it a step further. I don't know that it's super easy for regulators to navigate the space either. Um, you know, specific to earn wage access, there's a number of companies out there that offer it, right? And there's kind of two models of going to market. The first is really pitching it as an employee benefit. So, you know, companies are going B2B. And then after they've, they've signed a client, then they can make that product available to, to their employees. And the other is really direct to consumer. I think, you know, the CFPB published um, a letter in, I believe, 2021 giving some level of guidance on earned wage access and, and what the requirements are to qualify as a true earned wage provider. But they haven't formalized that guidance. And so I think it's still a pretty nascent space. Um, I, if, if I were a consumer that, that you know, didn't, didn't understand how to calculate something like an APR or, um, you know, it's just a, a kind of less sophisticated borrower, I'd have a really, really hard time determining what the difference between kind of an earned wage access versus a line of credit versus a paycheck link loan are. So the, the long-winded answer is I, I don't think that it's crystal clear to consumers. I would also argue that because of how new the, the space is, I, I think the whole industry is kind of learning as we go there. Yeah, I would I would echo that. I mean, I know um, I've heard from from yourself and from a variety of guests sitting in your chair uh, that the regulators are also playing catch up in this in this new world. Um, I know they're tear sheet listeners and and they attend our conferences and um, I know they appreciate some of the work that we're putting out. Um, so so I guess along this theme, I'm 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 curious on the benefits of underwriting someone's income versus say using a traditional credit score. Yeah, you know, I think in in. I would I would say that both both earned wage access and really paycheck link lending are great examples of this. So, you know, one of the one of the challenges in in underwriting purely based on credit score is as more and more people, you know, kind of work in the gig economy, and and I'm going to broaden that to not only mean folks that drive for the gig platforms that we all use on a day to day basis. Um, but also independent contractors. So you could be, a, you know, an independent trucker. Um, you could be a hairstylist. You could be a sole proprietor who's an electrician, you know, picking up work on the side, right? All of these people tend to have kind of high revolving balances to manage business expenses day to day, right? And the, the problem with having a high revolving balance is if you don't pay it off every month, your FICO score is going to go down. So you could be pretty high income, but look like a very risky borrower if you were purely underwriting a traditional credit score. Um, and, and I don't think that tells the whole story, right? I think what, what I've seen in kind of the, the non-prime space, so folks that have a, a FICO below 650, is that yes, FICO is still predictive, but it really doesn't tell the whole story of that applicant or that borrower. 
And so I think, I think where we're headed, and and there's a number of ways to get there, right, is more and more sophisticated financial institutions, as they think about underwriting, are really focused on things like what's your complete income picture, what's your cash flow look like month to month. Because ultimately, not only do you need that historical record of someone's ability to borrow, but you also need a much better understanding, I think, in, in today's economy of really what someone's income and cash flow looks like month to month. Um, so it, I, I would say that the very, the very short answer, underwriting income allows you to underwrite folks that you probably wouldn't have been able to uh, if you were purely relying on FICO. And from the consumer's perspective, you know, it opens up. The, these new innovative projects or, or products, pardon me, like earned wage access or paycheck link lending, um, so that you're able to qualify for for a better APR and and potentially more cash than you would otherwise be able to. I like the way that you, that you presented that. I, I think sometimes we get caught into saying an either or, like you know, FICO versus you know income based lending. But it sounds like from what you're saying, we're going to take the best of both solutions to get a, a really more rigorous, thoughtful, you know, appreciation of someone's creditworthiness. Yeah, you know, I, I think I think for for a long time, and and I'm talking even pre FICO, right? It was it was almost relationship underwriting, right? And and that that probably was true into the late '70s, and and then you had the rise of of intelligent you know, FICO scoring, right? And I think they're on, you know, FICO model 11 at this point or, so, or something like that. And they've gotten better and better at pricing risk. And and it's certainly a valuable tool. But now that we, we've kind of entered web or we're entering web 3.0 and, and there's a lot more data available just across the board, I, I think it's it's frankly the the kind of responsible and, and ethical thing to do to explore all of those opportunities to figure out how to better price risk, right? It's it's a constant evolution and and long term, the folks that win the space will use both. Makes total sense. Um, so what what are I want to come back to sort of the, the, these three different options? Uh, what are the benefits of earned wage access and paycheck linked lending? Sure, I'll I'll start with you know earned wage access. So I think I think earned wage access in my mind is is kind of like a win 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 as as a product. You know, starting from the consumer's perspective, it's it's a very inexpensive way to access you know smaller amounts of of kind of emergency funding. So again, something like groceries, tank of gas, maybe both, right? And it allows someone who who likely doesn't have the ability to qualify for a traditional credit card or is unable to use a traditional credit card kind of responsibly and wants to avoid ending up in a cycle of debt. It allows them to access the funds they need, pay them off quickly, and at a relatively low cost compared to, you know, what I would say are kind of the traditional options available in that space, which really are, are pawn loans and payday loans, right? Which I think universally people would agree um, are, are much more predatory and and frankly, just flat out predatory compared to an EWA product. So a lot of consumer benefit there allows people to manage their finances without ending up in, in a cycle of debt. I think from an employer perspective, and a lot of EWA platforms out there have, you know, have done some, some great work on kind of quantifying this impact. But from an employer perspective, especially in, in today's economy where it's really, really hard to find and retain talent, um, offering EWA 
really reduces employee turnover. I think it can be up to about 30%. Um, there's a great Harvard Kennedy School paper on this that I think was published in 2016. I would attempt to remember the title, but it's a long one, so I won't go there. But I, th there's a great paper on it that kind of highlights that. And so from an employer perspective, you know, it's, it's less expensive to offer EWA as a benefit than it is uh, to constantly be recruiting new talent, training them, and having to deal with the lost productivity of, of both of those periods, right? So I think win-win there. And from a financial institution perspective, I think it's a great way to build customer loyalty, right? It's, it's a relatively low-risk product. I'm not going to say no-risk product, um, but it's a relatively low-risk product where you are getting repaid directly from paycheck from the next pay cycle, and, and people love the product who are using it. And so I, I do think it's a great way to build customer loyalty, um, you know, potentially cross-sell additional products in the future, uh, like, you know, a checking account with additional benefits, uh, building, building emergency savings so you don't need to access EWA. Um, and so really, I, I view EWA as a win-win-win. On the paycheck link loan side, you know, I think, I think it's a, a similar story um, but I think the benefits are more broadly felt by the financial institution and the borrower versus necessarily uh, the employer, although similar stats exist. From, from a lending perspective, tying repayment directly to someone's paycheck adds about, it, it adds roughly 60 points to someone's FICO performance. So it doesn't add it directly to the score, right? But what I'm saying is if someone has a 600 FICO, and you're being repaid directly from paycheck, they're actually going to perform like someone with a 660 FICO. And that's a very meaningful, you know, kind of improvement in performance. Um, there's two things that an institution can, can do with that. The first is pass savings on delinquency rates and, and write-offs on to their broader borrowing base, right? And, and the other is expanding the credit box that they're willing to underwrite. So I think of this as if it's someone you already would have extended credit to, and they're willing to repay via paycheck, you can reduce the APR that you're charging them and, and preserve the, you know, the same ROE that, that you would have otherwise seen. You also could say, normally you would have been declined for this product, but what we're willing to do is still underwrite you if you're willing to repay via paycheck. So you can actually expand your total addressable market um, using that technology. I, I think, again, the folks who ultimately win the space are going to take advantage of both, right? They're, they are going to pass those savings along um, and expend, you know, expand the box that they're willing to underwrite. On the consumer side, you know, it's almost the reverse, right? It's it's either you're able to qualify to to meet an emergency expense you weren't expect, expecting. So again, most obvious one I can think of is something like a car repair. I don't know about you. Every single time I go to the mechanic. It's at least $1,000, probably closer to $1,500. Think back to the stat that I shared at the very top of our conversation. It's over 150 million people don't have $1,000 in savings, right? So how do you pay for it? Um, and I think a paycheck link loan is, is a much uh, less expensive way of going about that than necessarily putting it on a credit card or turning to some of those traditional options that existed. Um, and I, I again, I think the the other real advantage for consumers, especially for for the large segment of the population that falls into that non-prime space, it it just expands access to credit. 
in, in a much less predatory way than some of those traditional options that I mentioned. That was a very in-depth explanation. I appreciate uh, that, that framework. Um, so we, we've looked outside at sort of trends and the different products. I'd love to shift gears to look at Argyle and, and ask you how Argyle enables paycheck like lending. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I think if you think about the paycheck link lending process, there, there are a couple of key data points that that I think anyone would tell you they need. Um, first, you you absolutely need employment history. I think the benefit to a paycheck link loan it, it doesn't apply universally, right? If you think about um, you know a seasonal worker in retail, annual turnover in that industry is over a hundred percent. You're likely not going to see you know, the same 60.5 go improvement that you would if you were underwriting, um, you know, say, say a postal worker who's been in their job for, you know, 10 years, right? And so I think, I think first, you absolutely need to know where someone's working, you need to know how long they've been there, because that is a, a, a really powerful indicator of risk. Um, and, and you need to know what their income is, right? Because you need to be able to effectively determine how much uh, you're willing to extend in terms of credit. One of the great things about the API that we've built is that you know we we allow consumers to authenticate you know in into their payroll platform and we're able to allow them to share all of that data and more uh, with a financial institution that's you know that's looking to potentially extend credit to an applicant. Um, so we handle you know the verification side and really the the data side that you need to initially underwrite. The other kind of key component that you need for a paycheck link loan program is obviously securing repayment via paycheck. And I think traditionally, the way to do that was to work, you know, company by company directly with HR teams, uh, communicate what those payroll distributions um, need to be updated to, uh, you know, how much is still going to their checking account, how much is going to the lender, and and really there, there was quite a um, an administrative lift on behalf of the company itself to support a program like this. Argyle handles all of that, you know, for a financial institution. So again, using our API, you're able to programmatically make those updates and, and call, um, you know, our API to, to handle it. And so we eliminate that administrative burden really entirely on from HR, which allows you uh, really to, to offer this direct to consumer or if you are going B2B to, to you know, be up and running much, much faster. So we handle both the underwriting side and the facilitation on, on repayment, which is great. But I'm curious, like given your career, uh, you, you, you've seen sort of the evolution into, into, the, into the payroll world um, and this type of data. Like what gets you pumped? What gets you excited to come into work every morning? You know, I'm I'm sure I'm I'm sure our, our CEO and my, my boss will love this answer. Um, I th I think what gets me most excited is that we're we're barely scratching the surface of usefulness of of payroll and income data. Right. I think um, the focus to date, not only in the payroll space, but I would argue also in kind of the the banking data space, has really been about data accessibility. And increasing the you know the number of data points that a financial institution can use to make a credit decision, um, and I think V two of the industry that we're in is is being able to to build scoring on top of really that that all all of these additional data points right. So something like income stability, something like uh, employment stability, again to to 
with the idea being that we should be able to broaden access to, to credit and financial products versus restrict it. Um, so I think we're, we're still at the point where, you know, we're really, we're building that access piece and we're building what I would call kind of the perfect data set for, for income and employment verification to power all of these, you know, these great new products. And, and V2 of the industry, I think, is going to be adding even more value, you know, for our clients and downstream for consumers. Matt, thanks for joining us on the Tearsheet podcast today. Yeah, absolutely, Zach. Really appreciate it.